Welcome to Inside Scope, the American Gastroenterological Association podcast that will help you advance your patient care one half hour segment at a time. Join us to hear from the experts, learn new skills, and stay abreast of changing best practices. We'll be tackling a different topic each month, so make sure to subscribe and join us on our mission to improve digestive health for all. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Andres Acosta, host of our series, Obesity and GI Care, Start the Conversation, Change the Narrative. This series consists of six podcasts, episodes, and three webinars, which provide a comprehensive approach to diagnosing and treating obesity with a specific focus on patients with GI comorbidity. In today's episode, we're going to do a deep dive in updates on devices for obesity management in GI patients. And I'm honored and it's a pleasure to be joined by my friend and colleague, Dr. Barham Obdeya. Dr. Budeya is, as I like to say, a real-world expert. He's a professor in medicine, consultant in the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology in the Department of Internal Medicine at Mayo Clinic in Rochester. His research focuses on the development of minimal invasive endoscopic therapies for gastrointestinal diseases, such as obesity and metabolic diseases, but others as well. His team investigates the impact of alteration of gastrointestinal tract on fundamental physiological processes that regulate human appetite, metabolism, and energy expenditure, and uses devices and endoscopic tools for obesity and metabolic diseases. Torbudeya's work translates directly to patients, offering those with obesity and metabolic diseases effective and safe interventions. These interventions are offered as part of a comprehensive programs, which includes dietary, lifestyle, and behavior interventions. And I need to say I'm honored to be part of this program. Before I start throwing you a lot of questions, Let's revisit our fact from the last episode, which the question was, one pound of fat is equivalent to how many calories? The drum roll comes and the answer is about 3,500 calories is equivalent to one pound of fat that can be gained. So, Barham, awesome to see you as always. Unfortunately, my co-host Octavia Pickett-Bakley could not join us today, but let's start the conversation. And... I know you well, but I don't know all our listeners know you that well. So let's start by saying, why did you get into obesity and obesity care? Tell us how you get started into this field. Thank you, Andres. And it's a pleasure to be with you in this podcast. And I thank the AGA for the forward thinking to introduce this important topic to gastroenterologists and more broad uh, listeners. Well, we look around us and the answer is pretty obvious. This is a chronic disease. It affects large portions of the population. It's a common denominator for a lot of the chronic diseases that we're dealing with in GI and outside of GI. It's a killer of our families, our children, and our patients. And right now, we are not having enough awareness of this chronic disease and its consequences. And most of this disease is going unchecked without an organized management paradigm to congruent with the seriousness of this disorder. So to me, I see my family, even myself, and my patients suffering from the consequences of the chronic disease of obesity. And to me, it was a life mission and a call to action that I needed to do my part in order to raise awareness and tackle that disease that I know many, many patients suffering with. At what point during your career you said, I'm going to do 
obesity medicine and then endoscopic therapies. Believe it or not, Andres, I'm in GI because of obesity. That means I found early on in my career that my path to figure out how we could leverage the gastrointestinal tract for the treatment of obesity and comorbidity came very early on. I always was fascinated with the observation that the most effective and durable solution for the disease of obesity and comorbidity is altering the gastrointestinal tract, whether it's restricting it, rerouting it, or what have you. So to me, the answer was obvious very early on, is we need just to figure a way to do this with a minimally invasive fashion that does not permanently alter the anatomy or the function of the organ. And we're on to have a treatment modality that could benefit many, many patients. It does not compete with bariatric surgery, it complements bariatric surgery. So it's a spectrum of care, basically, similar to what we've seen in cardiovascular medicine. There is a spectrum of care between medications, stents for blocked arteries, and open-heart surgery. And the analogy is, is similar for the field of obesity. So I know very early on that the, the easiest path to get to realize my passion, which is finding endoscopic solutions for the treatment of obesity and metabolic disease, is through gastroenterology. Unfortunately, the path has not been easy because in GI curriculums, we do not overemphasize obesity. We don't even uh, consider it a gastrointestinal disease. But through this podcast, I'm very encouraged that our societies are realizing the impact of obesity on patients and on gastrointestinal diseases through this platform that we are raising awareness that more gastroenterologists need to participate in managing the disease of obesity. Absolutely. And thank you for highlighting that. I think that's extremely important. And people like yourself who has been leading the field and set up the path for many of us who have been following this. It's great to see your example and, and what you're doing. Tell us what is the state of the art as of today of that obesity multidisciplinary care? How do you see it? What are you doing at Mayo? What's happening around the space of the multidisciplinary care of obesity, particularly plugging in endoscopic devices? Yeah. Well, Andres, you've been front and central in what we're doing at Mayo, and you've had a significant contributions to the state of the art of understanding that the disease of obesity is heterogeneous, it has multiple drivers, and it's very easy to box it into components and just give patients a cliche advice, but most of the time this cliche advice that is broad is not sufficient uh, to get the patient on their track to take this disease seriously and to treat it. I'm very happy to share our experience at Mayo, which you've had a big part uh, in contributing to it, is that we take a different approach to the disease of obesity. We say that it's a disease and we need to figure a way to put the disease into remission pretty quickly. Because without putting the disease in, in remission, it's very hard to engage the patient. They've been struggling for this disease lifelong, some of them even during childhood. And they've been through these cycles where they try to restrict themselves and do what's right and their body fights back and they get frustrated and it's a yo-yo uh, upward trend to which we gain and frustration. So for us at Mayo, what we've done is we realize the struggles, we realize the frustrations. We want to attack this disease from a multidisciplinary lens with the patient being at the center. That means we start 
with evaluating the patient with the lens that we have a menu of options. We're not trying to force you into an option. We're trying to work with you to define the option that's going to work for you. And that's why we have programs like the Start Point, where you come with the disease of obesity and we give you uh, options that is stratified by the severity of it. If you have mild form of the disease, then the option that we give is lifestyle plus medication, maybe uh, endoscopic devices and procedure. If you have moderate forms of the disease, then the options that we give include lifestyle and medications and endoscopic bariatric therapies, but we start introducing bariatric surgery as well. If you have a severe form of the disease and you qualify, you want bariatric surgery, we definitely want to decrease the barrier and the obstacles of getting bariatric surgery because we know that it's life-saving uh, if you get these procedures. So the first step, which is the cultural shift that we had at Mayo, is we have to take the disease seriously, decrease the barrier for entry. So we are offering the patients an effective intervention that puts the disease in remission. And that's a new concept. Putting the disease in remission does not, does not mean that the intervention needs to last for five years. It means that we need to get rid of as much weight as quick as possible to get the patient to, to engage, to shift from this remission philosophy to weight maintenance strategy, which includes health living, not dieting. It includes physical activity, not forced exercise. And it includes adding other interventions during the lifetime of the patients, just as medication, more intensive lifestyle and behavioral intervention in order to get the patient there. But the premise of it, as I tell my patient, you live your life trying to climb a very steep set of stairs. And the intention is there. They want to climb up to where they have better health, but they take a few steps upward, their joints start hurting, they're tired, their body starts fighting, then they take three steps backward. What we're trying to do with this paradigm is give them a lift halfway up the stairs. So now they look down, they said, look what I did. I want to continue. Then they have to take the rest of the stairs by themselves and we will support them in the process. But this concept of a lift early on is an important one. The weight loss that you lose in the first three months in any program is going to be predicted with your long-term outcomes. So I really like that you're sharing with our listeners this concept of aggressive weight loss in a medical-graded fashion, supervised, to get the patients into obesity remission and then focus on healthy maintenance. So thank you for sharing that with our listeners of what we're doing. And now there's many tools. And in the past, in previous podcasts, in, in this series, we have discussed you know, what we can do with diets, what we can do with medications. But today we want to do a deeper dive on devices. And I would like you to explain us where do devices first fit in this spectrum of care, as you were talking before, and then tell us, elaborate what are devices that are currently approved in the FDA, by the FDA, using the United States, unless, and, and also worldwide. Thanks, Andres. So the, the devices currently fit mostly for patients with mild to moderate forms of the disease. That means class one to class two obesity, which is BMI between 30 to 40. However, beyond these compounds, the spectrum is fluid. So there's, the, and the disease 
is driven by different components at different times. For example, if somebody has BMI 28, so they're overweight, but they're suffering from fatty liver disease, then the devices could be, could be appropriate for lower BMI to treat a comorbidity such as a fatty liver disease. And we know that this is significant, especially for patients with, a, with an Asian background because of the genetic makeups and the disease uh, drivers or the, the phenotype expression becomes er at earlier BMIs in this cohort as well as Latinos as well, for, uh, definitely. So then it becomes standard is BMI 30 to 40. Uh, we go outside of these bounds to the lower end of it if we have the genetic, uh, the appropriate genetic background or it's driven by treatment of a comorbidity. But then, then we also go outside if somebody is beyond BMI 40, for example, but they really, we gave them the option to do bariatric surgery but for whatever reason, this has been an obstacle for that patient. That means they understand that they need to do something. We offer them the gold standard, which, we, which is for this cohort is bariatric surgery, but they just cannot accept that option at that point. To me, leaving these patients saying, okay, we gave you the option, you did not want it, there's nothing else we could offer, is the wrong message for our patient. We have tools. So even if you are outside of these bounds and we gave you a good shared decision-making ability. That means we give all the options in an objective fashion. And the patients say, no, I hear you, but I would like to get something that maintain my anatomy. So it does not change my anatomy too much. Then bariatric endoscopy could be an option. We counsel the patient that we need to work extra hard in this scenario because there's more weight to be lost. And as you know, we've partnered on many patients where we give them these intervention and your team uh, phenotype them and start giving them directed therapies as far as uh, uh, anti-obesity pharmacotherapies that targets the different drivers. And we've been very successful with this paradigm of combination therapy. So beyond these bounds, we just we still offer these procedures, but we have to have a good dialogue with patients and give them all the options and have set the right expectations to position the patients for success. And also to add that we've had many patients who we use the endoscopic devices to bridge them to the bariatric surgery and work with our colleagues in bariatric surgery to help them lose weight, de-risk their surgery, and then proceed to surgery. And I think you have had many cases uh, such as that. So tell us about what is currently being used in the United States. What has been approved? What's been used? In the United States currently, we have two classes of endoscopic bariatric therapies that are approved. The first class is space-occupying devices. These are temporary prosthesis that could take the forms of intragastric balloon, but also could take the form of transpyloric shuttles that we will discuss later on. And their advantage is that they do not alter the anatomy whatsoever because they are an implantable device that spend an indwelling period in mostly in the stomach at this point, and then they are removed after an interval. So these space-occupying devices, they really fit the model of this remission story, that there are temporary devices, but while they're there, they're quite effective in helping patients alter satiety and satiation pathways so they could follow a caloric-restricted diet, they lose the weight quickly, and now it gives us a period of about six months to a year 
to prepare them to adopt the healthy living for the weight maintenance portion and prepare them with, with pharmacotherapy and what have you in order to maintain that weight loss. So this is one class of devices that are approved. Currently, we have multiple balloons approved. There is a single fluid-filled intragastric balloon that is approved for indwelling time in the United States for six months. Outside of the United States, there's a version of that balloon, what we call the Orbera balloon, that is approved to stay indwelling for a year. So you can see that we're pushing the boundaries as far as the indwelling times in order to give patients more enabling tool to help them lose the weight and maintain it. Also in the U.S., we have an adjustable fluid-filled balloon. It's called the SPATS-3. The indwelling time of that balloon is longer. It's eight months in the United States, one year outside of the United States. The advantage of this balloon is it targets the issue of tolerance. A cohort of patients do not tolerate the balloon and request removal of the balloon early on in the implantation period. The advantage of that balloon is it will enable the, the operator to take some volume off in order to enhance the tolerance of the balloon so patients could continue with the therapy. And in clinical trial, it shows that this paradigm of downward adjustment helps about 75% of patients prevent early removal of the device and continue with therapy. And then the other, the adjustable balloon also could upward adjust once the weight loss plateau happens in order to give an extra boost toward the end of the therapy for maximizing the weight loss with the device. In this category, we have gas-filled intragastric balloon. And the one system that's approved, it's called the Obolon. And the Obolon is a series of three balloons filled with proprietary mixtures of gas. And these are swallowable balloons that you swallow them. They get filled with gas. You swallow three of them a few weeks apart. And all three balloons come out at six months. Uh, so swallowable paradigm with endoscopic uh, removal at uh, six months or uh, from the first balloon or about three months from the third balloon that the patient uh, swallows. We had a double fluid-filled intragastric balloon called Reshape that is approved by the FDA but currently not being marketed uh, because of the uh, availability of the other uh, balloons in the United States. Now, along these the lines of these prosthesis, we have this, what we call the transpyloric shuttle. And the transpyloric shuttle is similar to the intragastric balloon, but it's not a balloon. It's a prosthesis-like device that in a fasting state, it stays in the stomach. In a fed state, it takes a transpyloric configuration, so it delays the gastric emptying. And by the delay in gastric emptying, you're affecting satiety and the patients consume less calories uh, during the meal and, and they lose weight. That device is implanted for a year and is both placed endoscopically and removed endoscopically uh, after a year. These are the uh, prostheses available in the United States. Outside of the United States, there's many other balloons available with mixtures of gas, and fluid. There is a version of a balloon that it's a capsule. It's filled with gas, but you swallow it. And the balloon itself comes out with the bowel movement in about three to four months after implantation. This is a endoscopy-free intragastric balloon called Ellipse uh, or Alluron that's available outside of the United States, currently in clinical trial in the United States. The second class of devices or procedures that are available globally and in the United States is the gastric remodeling techniques. And the gastric remodeling techniques is 
uh, offers certain advantages over the prosthesis or the implantable devices. And they also have some disadvantages compared to the prosthesis. The advantages of the uh, gastric remodeling techniques is that they are done through the mouth in a single endoscopy session. So you don't need multiple endoscopies to do these. Usually tolerance is better than the prosthesis because there is no foreign body being left in the GI tract. These are take the form of either endoscopic suturing or plication that change the shape of the stomach. And we'll talk about the change of the stomach momentarily here. But their advantage is they're done through the, the mouth. There's no scars. Uh, they are a single endoscopy session that nowadays is done in about 30 to 45 minutes uh, worth of procedural time. The other advantage is better tolerance and more durable results. Nothing is permanent in this field, but when you look at the value proposition is with the remodeling, now we're taking the horizon of active weight loss from the six months to a year to the two years mark. And there could be more, but we're taking that horizon and two years mark. And in the United States, the only procedure that works on gastric remodeling is using the uh, overstitch endoscopic suturing device to create that configuration of the stomach. The plication devices from platforms like USGI uh, or what we call the IOP incisionless operating platform is also in FDA clinical trials, but also available in Europe clinically as well. And the idea with the gastric remodeling is the following. And we've done a lot of this work at Mayo Clinic. It doesn't matter with what device you do the gastric remodeling. What matters is the final shape of the stomach that produces physiological benefit. And we've shown through collaboration with you, Andres, and with Mike Camillary, that the shape of the stomach is that of a funnel. If you could get this funnel, the stomach to look like a funnel, that means there's a small fundus that food sits there. There is a tubularized banana-shaped body of the stomach, and then there's an intact small antrum. So that's the funnel shape that we're talking about. So what does that funnel shape do? Is it changes the accommodation of the stomach. That means you eat a meal, patients will terminate that meal very quickly because that small fundus pouch accommodates quickly conveying signals through the afferent vagus nerves to the brainstem to terminate the meal with small volume and quicker time. Then that meal is, sits in the fundus for a prolonged period of time and eventually empties to the antrum. So there's a delay in the gastric emptying that enhance satiety or the in-between meal intervals so the patients are not feeling hungry for a longer period of time. The beauty of that, it, it does not cause gastroparesis. And that's a key concept from the work that we're doing the reason it empties gastric emptying is because the stomach is not contracting. It's not because the contractions are weaker. It's not because the contractions are not there. The reason it delays gastric emptying is there's a phase delay between food making it from the fundus to the antrum. But once it makes it to the antrum, the antrum contractility is fully intact. So the patient empties that meal normally. So they have a delay in gastric emptying when enhanced satiety and satiation but there is no gastroparesis phenotype because the antrum is intact. And that's work that we, we defined using MRI studies and using a gastric accommodation and emptying showing that concept. So this is, these are the two classes. We talked about prosthesis. We talked about gastric remodeling. 
The third available technology in the United States is this aspiration therapy where a PEC tube is inserted or a modified PEC tube is inserted in the stomach to allow patients to aspirate part of the ingested meal. Unfortunately, although very good results in clinical trials as far as the efficacy of this device, the uptake has been uh, limited and currently this device is not being marketed today. Thank you, Barhan. That's a beautiful summary in the rest of the world. We have endoscopic duodenal liners and what's the role they're playing and what's happening in the United States for those who are listening to know a little bit about what's the status of that? So outside of the United States, we're venturing into the small bowel interventions. In the United States, we have a lot of the gastric interventions that we talked about. Outside of the United States, now we have the small intestinal interventions. They're also in the United States, but on clinical trials, and we're participating in many of these as part of clinical trials. So to summarize the small intestinal intervention, the small intestinal intervention work more on metabolic pathways beyond just weight loss. That's their advantage, is that they could target specific disease processes like fatty liver or type 2 diabetes to implicate it in where the GI tract is implicated in the pathophysiology of that disease. So they're really good for diabetes management. They're good for fatty liver disease management. And they have a synergistic component with gastric devices. That means we could look at a future where we have modular systems that affect the gastric physiology or the small intestinal physiology in tandem or in sequence for metabolic benefit and enhanced weight loss and more durable weight loss. So that's the advantage of these devices. Now, when we talk about the small intestinal devices, I classify them into three categories as well. One category that bypasses the proximal small intestines, and these are the liners that you refer to, uh, Andres. And the premise of these liners is about 65 centimeters of a biosynthetic material. And this biosynthetic material bypasses the proximal small intestines. So it gives the small intestines or the proximal small intestines the ability to rebuild, regenerate. We still do not understand all of this, but the end product is improved metabolic health. So type 2 diabetes improve, hemoglobin A1C improve, time and range as far as glucose control improve. That's the premise of this device. Now, when you say, why does that make sense? To me, it makes a lot of sense. And that's part of my extreme excitement about getting into GI. If you think about who is orchestrating the metabolic response in normal human physiology, all fingers will point back to the duodenum. The duodenum is that orchestra and, uh, conductor. The stomach takes the ingested nutrients, mix them, prepares them, then it starts introducing them to the duodenum, and the duodenum is responsible in orchestrating how the body is going to respond to the ingested meal. So truly, it's the orchestra conductor that organized this response, and unfortunately, through years of exposure to poor diet, that and genetic background and the genetic background of the patient, that conductor becomes inefficient in doing what they're doing. That's why resting that conductor by bypassing the small intestines seems to be an a, attractive target in order to treat type 2 diabetes and fatty liver disease, which takes us to the second class of devices. Instead of just bypassing that area of the duodenum temporarily, some companies now are thinking about if we have a tired conductor 
can we retire that conductor and have the system regenerate itself to get a more energetic conductor to do the business of dealing with the metabolic response? So that's been the premise of the duodenal remodeling uh, technologies or duodenal resurfacing technologies. And now they take different flavors because obviously the signals from the duodenum could come from multiple levels. It could come from the superficial mucosal level. It could come from the enteric nervous plexus in the submucosa that has endings communicating with important nerves like the vagus nerves and sympathetic nervous system. And there's a lot of signaling happening at that level. And it could even come from deeper layers. So some companies are focusing on regenerating the superficial mucosal layer. And this is companies like Fractal, which they use heated water in order to regenerate the superficial layer. There's other companies that we're working with that are based on athermal modalities of what we call pulse electrical field or electroporation, that they're now, because of the athermal nature of these techniques, we're able to regenerate the superficial layer, but also to regenerate the nerves in the deeper structures because there's no damage or there's no collateral damage for the same metabolic benefit. There's other companies that use laser to do this and companies that use steam to do this as well. So there's a lot of interest in these duodenal resurfacing or regenerating technologies as a treatment for type 2 diabetes. Colonoscopy model saves a lot of life in gastroenterology because we detect, pancre- we detect colon cancer early or we could detect a precursor to colon cancer, which is polyps, and we remove them and we deal with them. With these resurfacing technologies, we're heading into a colonoscopy model for type 2 diabetes. That means we could regenerate this fundamentally main player in this metabolic disease spectrum, which is the duodenum. We could regenerate it early to either prevent type 2 diabetes, treat early forms of it without medication, and even in later forms, we could use it as an insulin-sparing strategy to decrease the need of insulin or eliminate it. So it's going to become a colonoscopy-like model for type 2 diabetes where the gastroenterologist will play an important role in working or collaborating with endocrine uh, colleagues in order to help manage this disease in a subset of patients with modern medications like the GLP-1s or the SGL-2s. And the idea that in combination, we are sparing patients from insulin because we know all the costs associated with insulin and the fact that it causes weight regain and what have you. Now, other technologies available uh, in the small intestinal space work on bile acid circulation. Now, we talked about the proximal small intestines, but bile acid signaling has an important role in this equation. And these class of devices they create bypasses or anastomosis that allows bile to circulate into the distal small intestines quicker than it would in a normal anatomy, thus triggering the different bile acid receptors through the FXR pathways in order to have metabolic benefits, whether on that fatty liver or on type 2 diabetes. So these are what we call the new anastomosis, endoscopic anastomosis creation using magnets or using luminal-opposing metal stents or what have you. So this is what's in the world market as far as endoscopic bariatric and metabolic therapy centers. It's just fascinating looking at the, not only what is available that currently a gastroenterologist can use, but what is in the horizon. It's just a fascinating landscape of how gastroenterologists who already have the endoscope on their hands and feel very comfortable with it, can embrace obesity 
And now you're telling us also diabetes and NASH with our endoscopes, with tools endoscopically that have randomized trials, have very strong evidence that helps patients with obesity and now diabetes. So how do you see the future? There is so many things going on, so much excitement. Where do you see the future? Can you give us maybe your crystal ball horizon maybe five years from now? The future, Andres, is collaboration, collaboration, collaboration to benefit the patient. This time and era where it's turf war, people working in silos benefits nobody and does not benefit our patients. That's why we have to lead with the message that this is a chronic multi-organ disease that requires a team to view it from that angle. We do what works for the patient. And that's why we have to take this as a team approach. There is no turf battles between lifestyle or medications or endoscopy or surgery. We're all on one team to take care of the patient. The spectrum of care should be fluid. And 99% of the disease is going unchecked. That means that there's, if we all work together, we still will gonna have a challenge to address the burden of this disease. That's why the key is collaboration, keeping a patient-centric focus that we all try to do what's best for our patients and what works for them. Because obviously the best intervention that does not work for the patient is not gonna be something that is gonna be followed. That's why the key is multidisciplinary collaborative approach that could include multiple intervention at different points in the lifetime of that patient because we're treating with the chronic disease in order to get to the end goal, which is minimize the impact or the negative impact of this chronic inflammatory disease on patients' health, whether cardiovascular, cancer, psychological, or what have you. And that is the message. So if I have a crystal ball, what we're going to see in the future is these hybrid modular procedures between minimally invasive bariatric surgery and endoscopy. That means the key is preserve as much of the anatomy as possible, but have modular devices that could get you to an endpoint and you apply them or remove them without burning bridges as far as altering the anatomy too much. So I think the next class of devices that we're gonna see, there's gonna be a modular type of devices that capitalize on the ability of minimally invasive surgery and endoscopy to come together in order to implement them. So the future is bright, but the key is we have to take an open-minded collaborative approach in order to benefit patients. There's a lot of work done there very early on with helping patients who had bariatric surgery and have regained weight. Tell us how that's probably one of the first areas that we can start that collaboratory effort with our surgeons. Where does it go next? Definitely, Anders. As you know, we and our bariatric surgery colleagues, we view ourselves as one team here. So we talk to each other frequently, often, and we together do what's best for, for our patients. So part of our model here is when we have somebody who got gastric bypass surgery or sleep gastrectomy, and they are struggling with weight regain, we offer them get back on track programs, so behavioral intervention, lifestyle intervention. We offer them meds, but early on in the process, we also offer them the option to reintroduce the restriction component of the surgery 
by doing an endoscopic revision of the gastrojural anastomosis in the case of roi gastric bypass or restricting the surgical sleeve volume using endoscopic suture. And that has been a very welcomed addition. So now we take a patient who is frustrated because they got a major surgery and they gained weight back, and we're offering them real solutions where they feel they're enabled to go back on a track and lose weight and adopt a healthier lifestyle. Now we're taking it even a step further. And we're just saying we could do more for these patients because it's true, I, patients are very frustrated. If you started your weight loss journey with a body mass index of 55, you get a gastric bypass surgery, and now that you're seeing your body mass index 20 years later in a small cohort of patients, is still at 55 or 60. For these patients, we decided that we could do more. Obviously, we could give them a more aggressive procedure, like duodenal switches and practicable diversion, which have good results. But also we start to explore with our colleagues in bariatric surgery, how could we do more for these patients? And in a, in a handful of patients, we start this concept of restricting the gastric pouch and distalizing the small intestines. So you're capitalizing on both pathways, the restrictive gastric pathways and creating a longer bypass or distalizing the small intestines. And for the few patients that we've done, it worked miracles on these patients and demonstrate that our best hope for the future is a collaborative approach because endoscopy by itself is not going to be enough. Surgery and commencement by itself is not going to be enough. Taking the benefit of these both worlds to benefit the patients have resonated and we've shown uh, good results with that. Now, extrapolating from there, I see a future where we're going to define a minimally invasive approach to implant our devices without losing the structure or the function of the stomach or the small intestines. That means our minimally invasive surgical colleagues are going to collaborate with us to have a set of devices that are modular that allow us to create the gastric restriction and the bypass of the small intestines and the bile acid circulation, but without rerouting or removing that organ. So I think that's what we're going to look for. The future is a hybrid laparoscopic endoscopic approach in order to get us to a modular-like devices that you could apply during the patient's lifetime, but you do not burn bridges in that you maintain the anatomy, both in structure and in function. So you're kind of getting the best of the both worlds, right? The, uh, you're getting the benefit of most of the benefit of bariatric surgery, but without accepting too much risks or altering the anatomy permanently with that. So that's why I think Collaboration is exciting, and we need to push this more with our endocrinology colleagues, with our behavioral sciences colleagues, and with our bariatric surgery colleagues. And we should view ourselves as all members of the, of the same team rather than different teams. It's beautiful. I think what you're saying is exactly how the future should look, and we should work in a collaborative fashion to get there. It's that multidisciplinary care, pushing the, the limits and gathering the best evidence base to help our patients. I know we can talk forever, we usually do, and we keep brainstorming on what the future is and the big ideas that we need to be pursuing. But for our listeners and for everyone else, thank you so much, Dr. Barham Abudeya. It's an honor to be your colleague and having this time to chat with you. So thank you everyone else for tuning in to today's episode, which was the fourth of six episodes in our series, Obesity and GI Care, Start the conversation, change the narrative. 
which was made possible by an unrestricted educational grant from Novo Nordis. Special thanks again to my good friend and colleague, Dr. Barham Abudeya, and for our listening audience. We will leave them again with a trivia question for the next podcast. What GI tract organ does not have fat cells? All right, I'll repeat the question. What GI tract organ does not have fat cells? Keep listening to the series for an answer to this factoid in our next episode. In our next episode, we'll discuss evaluation patients' outcomes, adapting treatment plans, and obesity coding and reimbursement. For additional resources for this program, including the release of additional podcast series and webinars, visit AGA University at aga.gastro.org. Thank you again to our listeners, and Barham, thank you for your time. Thanks, Andres. It's a pleasure. I appreciate the AGA putting this, and thank you, Novo, for supporting the program. Thanks for listening to Inside Scope, an official AGA podcast. Make sure to subscribe to be notified as we roll out new episodes. For more GI education, visit AGA University at agau.gastro.org.